Right, we're continuing with our series in Luke's Gospel. Today we're going to consider Mary's visit to Elizabeth. We're looking at Luke chapter 1, verse 39 through to 48. By way of recap, a virgin named Mary received news from the age angel Gabriel in Luke chapter 1, verse 31 to 33. Gabriel said to Mary, Thou shalt conceive in thy womb and bring forth a son and shalt call his name Jesus. He shall be great and shall be called the son of the highest and the Lord God shall give unto him the throne of his father David. And he shall reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom, there shall be no end. I don't know, I still think about what the angel said to um, Mary there. How much she had understood at the time is anybody's guess. Bearing in mind she was a virgin, to be told that she would conceive and bring forth a son. At the time of that visit, I mean, I also pointed out to you that the normal response of people when they receive a visit from Gabriel was that they would be struck with fear. So, And she was fearful. Um, Gabriel said, don't fear. So she had all that to deal with. Having a visit from an angel of God and being told that she, a virgin, would conceive and bring forth a son, and then all the rest of it there. He shall be called the son of the highest, and that his kingdom would be an everlasting kingdom. I think she probably spent quite a bit of time after that just trying to digest what the angel had said to her. Amazing words there that she received from the Lord's um, angel. Also in verse 36, Gabriel gave Mary some news concerning her relative, Elizabeth. He said, Behold thy cousin Elizabeth, she have also conceived a son in her old age. And this is the sixth month with her, who was called barren. She wasn't able to conceive, she wasn't able to bring forth a child, and that flies annoying me, both um, Elizabeth and her husband Zacharias were old. The son of Elizabeth's old age refers to John, as in John the Baptist. In due time, John's ministry would be to make ready a people prepared for the son of Mary, the Lord Jesus Christ. Coming to today's passage, we see in chapter 1, Verse 39 to 40. Why are you coming straight to me? <laughs> we see in chapter 1, verse 39 to 40, that Mary arose. Let's look at verse 39 to 40. I think I'm being told here to focus upon the word. Let's read these words. 39 to 40. And Mary arose in those days and went into the hill country with haste into a city of Judah and entered into the house of Zacharias and saluted Elizabeth. We're not told the exact nature of Mary's relationship with Elizabeth, other than in verse 36, where they are said to be cousins. 
But the word that's translated cousin simply means that they were related in some way. They didn't have to be quite literally cousins. Suffice to say that their relationship was close enough for Mary to get up, to go into the hill country, to go and visit her cousin, her relation, Elizabeth, in a city of Judah, where they would spend three months together. That's quite a long time, isn't it? They'd spend three months together, according to verse 56. That would give them plenty of time to rejoice together and reflect upon God's grace to both of them. Both of them who would give birth to sons. Mary, who was still a virgin, and Elizabeth, who was barren and she was old. They had a lot to be thankful to God for and to praise him for. First of all, we can consider the joy of an unborn baby. How about that? Look at verse 41 to 45. And it came to pass that when Elizabeth heard the salutation of Mary, the baby leapt in her womb. And Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Ghost. And she spake out with a loud voice and said, Blessed art thou among women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb. And whence is this to me, that the mother of my Lord should come to me? For, for lo, as soon as the voice of thy salutation sounded in mine ears, the babe leapt in my womb for joy. How about that? The baby leapt for joy. Upon Mary's arrival, Elizabeth's unborn son, John, who according to verse 15, we saw that the other week, John who was filled with the Holy Ghost, even in his mother's womb, we see now that he leapt for joy inside his mother's womb at the arrival of Mary. That ought to be food for serious thoughts, serious thought for all who support abortion and who chant, my body, my choice. Or at the very least, they agree with and endorse those words. And I know I've had it and various others have had it. Uh, people in, nose to nose with me, snarling at me and telling me, my body, my choice with so much anger. Abortionists ought to seriously consider that inside Elizabeth's body was another body that was filled with God, the Holy Ghost, just like his mother, and that he experienced joy. Again, the baby inside Elizabeth, the body inside a body, was filled with the Holy Ghost and experience joy the good news is that there is forgiveness for all repentant sinners including those who having once supported the slaughter of unborn babies trust in the Lord Jesus Christ as their saviour Jesus is able to save all who come to God by him believing that he paid the penalty for their sins, all their sins and whatever those sins may be. And he did so with his own precious blood and his life at the cross. And that's not just an attack, it's not an attack on people who have supported abortion. I, I did 
if I'm being honest with you now, I can remember as a young man, it meant nothing to me. And yet only a few years ago, by the grace of God, I and others were opposing the relaxation of the abortion laws on this island. It's all by the grace of God. And God is gracious and merciful. Call on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ as a repentant sinner and you will be saved. Secondly, we have Elizabeth's prophetic words. There can be no doubt that Elizabeth was someone who had a genuine saving faith. That can be deduced from the fact that in verse 43, she referred to Mary's unborn son as her Lord. Look at that again there, verse 43. And whence is this to me that the mother of my Lord should come to me? As a believer, Elizabeth would have been quickened or born again, that's what quickened means, born again by God, the Holy Spirit who filled her and he would have guided her and he would have sanctified her, made her holier and holier so that she reached higher levels of holiness day by day as the Holy Spirit was working in her and moulding her and shaping her. And, and doing so through the word of God, which is truth. You'll know about such things if you're a Christian, and, the, and that is because you have the Holy Spirit in you, working in you to will and to do of God's good pleasure. You have the Holy Spirit in you, teaching you all things, sanctifying you by the word of God, which is truth. The Holy Spirit who guides you and who leads you each and every day as you carefully read and meditate upon the scriptures. If you live in the Spirit, walk in the Spirit and are led by the Spirit, you, don't, you no doubt look to the Holy Spirit to guide you so that you know when to speak and when to bridle your mouth when to keep your mouth shut. After all, as James said in his epistle, the tongue is a fire, a world of iniquity and an unruly evil, full of deadly poison. I think you know that as well as I do as a Christian. It's so easy to open your mouth and then something comes out which is anything but honouring to God. Uh, as much as we would all want to say things that glorify the Lord Jesus Christ, it doesn't always work out that way. And so we look to God to enable us to bridle our tongues. And, and when we do speak, to say something that is profitable for others, something that will honour and glorify God. With the enabling of the indwelling Holy Spirit, I trust it is your desire to be like the psalmist who said, my heart is indicting. In other words, his heart is bubbling up a good matter. I speak of the things which I, I have made touching the king. My tongue is the pen of a ready writer. How lovely is that? Is that your prayer that your tongue would be the pen of a ready writer? So, from the overflow of the psalmist's heart came forth a stream of good words 
about the King of Kings, the Lord Jesus Christ. What flowed from his heart and his mouth were not idle words, but rather he gave voice to well-crafted meditations as he was moved to do so by God, the Holy Spirit. Isn't that your prayer, your desire? To have well-crafted words proceeding from your heart and your mouth that exalt and magnify Jesus. However, Elizabeth, being filled with the Holy Ghost, goes way beyond her uttering well-crafted words or else bridling her tongue. It explains how, upon Mary's arrival, Mary's salutation, Elizabeth was able to respond with prophetic words. She didn't just speak inspired words, she spoke prophetic words. There's no indication that Elizabeth had any prior knowledge of Mary's situation. I don't imagine she had a phone call or a text message from Mary. She just had this Mary arriving at her door and greeting her. As such, what she said upon Mary's arrival was given to her there and then by God, the Holy Ghost. First of all, Elizabeth said to Mary precisely the same thing as the angel Gabriel had said to her, Blessed art thou among women. We see that in verse 42. Mary was truly blessed by God in that she carried in her womb the son of the highest, who was also the object of his father's delight. And as I said last time, if you can, I, I should imagine that God was her fortress. After all, she was carrying inside her the, the son of the most high God. <laughs> then Elizabeth asked the following question. And whence is this to me, that the mother of my Lord should come to me? I don't imagine that Elizabeth was waiting for an answer from Mary to that question. I don't imagine for one moment she was. It was a rhetorical question. By saying what she said, in humility she was acknowledging her unworthiness to receive a visit from the mother of the Lord. Then speaking prophetically of things to come as she was moved by the Holy Ghost, Elizabeth said, there shall be a performance of those things which were told her from the beginning. This is how we know that she was speaking prophetically. There shall be a performance of those things which were told her from the beginning. Elizabeth was speaking of things that were still to come. And that's what the word of prophecy is all about, isn't it? Looking into the future. By saying those words, God was confirming to Mary by the mouth of Elizabeth all that the angel had already said to her in verse 32 and verse 33. Let's, have a, let's remind ourselves what the angel had already said to Mary. Verse 32. He shall be great and shall be called the Son of the Highest. And the Lord God shall give unto him the throne of his father David. And he shall reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom there shall be no end. Again, all of these things that Mary must have spent a lot of time just thinking about and trying to make sense of. 
Thirdly, we have Mary's song of praise. In verse 46, Mary said, My soul doth magnify the Lord. First of all, by saying, My soul doth magnify the Lord, makes the Lord bigger. Isn't that what magnification does? It makes something bigger or or look bigger. Mary was proclaiming the greatness of God, which is no mean task when you consider just how great the Lord God is. For example, in Isaiah chapter 66 and verse 1, it is written, Thus saith the Lord, the heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. We're getting some idea now just how, how great God is. And still in Isaiah chapter 40 and verse 22, the prophet said the following concerning the Lord. It is he that sitteth upon the circle of the earth and the inhabitants thereof are as grasshoppers that stretcheth out the heavens as a curtain and spreadeth them out as a tent to dwell in. This is God who spreads out the heavens as a curtain and spreadeth them out as a tent to dwell in. And that always, when I read that verse, it always takes me to um, the New Testament, to Hebrews chapter 1 and verse 10, where we read of the Lord Jesus Christ, that he laid the foundation of the earth and the heavens are the work of his hands. And this gives us an idea of just how great God is. And yet Mary, what was inside her womb? A little baby. And in that little baby dwelt all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. But God is great. And how can we, grasshoppers no less, how can we magnify the Lord when we we read such things about him that the heaven is his throne, that heaven is his throne and the earth is his footstool. How can you, how can I magnify the Lord? doesn't seem possible, does it? Consider the stars in the sky. They look tiny, don't they? You look up at the sky at night, tiny little stars, until you observe them through a powerful telescope. And the telescope magnifies those stars And then those stars aren't quite so tiny anymore, are they? In fact, they're rather big once you start looking at them through a telescope. If you're a Christian, you can magnify the Lord by focusing on the cross where the incarnate Son of God, the Lord Jesus Christ, sacrificially laid down his life as he carried in his own body the sins of all who trust in him. I don't know if you're thinking, how can we magnify God by focusing on the cross? That place where Jesus died, where he laid down his life, no less. Well, consider this, at the cross, nowhere else. At the cross, the glorious of attribute, the glorious attributes of God are magnified like no other place. Attributes such as his wrath, his punishment for sin, his hatred for sin, his mercy, his love for hell-deserving sinners, 
We see all of that at the cross. Just consider the love of God for a moment. God commendeth his love towards us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. There's no greater expression of love than the love of God that was manifested at the cross towards hell-deserving sinners when his only begotten son sacrificially laid down his life. I, I often say this, I challenge anyone to give a greater example than the cross uh, as an example of love. People who have not come to Jesus and received him as their saviour, quite frankly, they, they, they don't really understand what love is all about. If you want to know what love is about, focus on the cross of Christ. That's where you'll see love. Therefore, the way to magnify the Lord is to focus on the cross through the telescope of the Bible as you proclaim the holiness of God, his grace, his love and his mercy towards sinners. That's how we can magnify the Lord. As well as Mary saying, my soul doth magnify the Lord, she said, and my spirit have rejoiced in God my Saviour. Mary would have known from the Old Testament scriptures, bearing in mind that there were no New Testament scriptures as such at that time, but she would have known from the Old Testament scriptures that salvation often refers to deliverance from enemies and from perilous situations in the world. For example, in 2 Samuel chapter 22, verses 2 and 4, David said, The Lord is my rock and my fortress, my deliverer, the God of my rock. In him will I trust. He is my shield and the horn of my salvation, my high tower and my refuge, my saviour. Thou savest me from violence. I will call on the Lord who is worthy to be praised. So shall I be saved from mine enemies. It's clear in those verses that apart from anything else, God was David's saviour from earthly enemies. Such as King Saul. Such as his own son Absalom, who tried to take his kingdom from him. David had quite a few enemies. And he was giving praise to God, who saved him from his earthly enemies. But also in the Old Testament, salvation can, as one might expect, refer to salvation from sin. Still with David, he was a man of God who most certainly knew God as his saviour from sin, as well as his saviour from earthly enemies. Even so, the joy of that salvation from sin departed from David's spirit when he sinned against God, his saviour from sin, even though he was a man of God and even though he was a man of God's own heart, David really was someone who was trusting in God. He was an Old Testament believer, but, and he was trusting in God as his saviour from sin, but he lost that joy when he sinned against God. As I've done more than a few occasions, I, I again, you know, this is something I would have to admit, and I'm, I do so knowing full well 
but the other believers in here have, have been through the same horrible experience where you have sinned against God who loved you and sent his son into the world to save you and to, to give you everlasting life and still the things that you don't want to do, you do. And you sin against God. Against, and, and as David said in Psalm 51, against thee and thee only have I d- sinned and done, done this evil in thy sight. I've been there, I've got the badge and I'm sure you have as well, dear Christian, if you're being honest with yourself and of course with God. And what happens when, when, when you sin against the God of your salvation? What happens when you're in that situation where you're on your knees crying up to heaven against thee, thee only have I sinned? You lose that joy of salvation as David did when his mouth became like the drought of summer and he groaned all day long and the hand of God was heavy upon him this man of God. And you, so you lose that joy. God, God is always with you. It just seems like he's a million miles away. But coming back to Mary here, she said, my, my spirit have rejoiced in God my saviour. Well, consider the message that she just received from the angel Gabriel about her conceiving and giving birth to Jesus, which means Jehovah is salvation. That's what Jesus means. And that he shall be called the son of the highest. By calling God her saviour, when she said, my spirit have rejoiced in God my saviour, she demonstrated that she understood God's plan of salvation through his son Jesus and she therefore knew God as her saviour in the highest sense of him being her saviour from sin. The Bible commentator Albert Barnes' remark about Mary calling God her saviour seems perfectly reasonable. He said, God is called saviour as he saves people from sin and death. He was Mary's saviour as he had redeemed her soul and given her a title to eternal life and she rejoiced for that and especially for his mercy in honouring her by her being made the mother of the Messiah. Also it should not be missed that by referring to God as her saviour Mary, she refuted the Roman Catholic dogma of the Immaculate Conception, which holds that from the moment of her conception, Mary was by, was by God's grace kept, from, kept free from all taint of original sin. That's what the Roman Catholics believe. They believe that Mary, Mary was without sin from the moment of conception. No doubt all who hold to the belief that Mary never sinned will insist that when she said, my spirit have rejoiced in God my saviour, she was not referring to God as her saviour from sin. However, we're going to look at this 
perhaps uh, more so when we get to it, but if you have a sneaky look at chapter 2, verse 24, you'll see that Mary really was a sinner. That she offered two turtle, turtle doves or two young pigeons in the temple. Since I've mentioned it, we may as well look at it. This is a reference to Mary. Um, okay, we'll take it from verse 22 in chapter 2. And when the days of her purification according to the law of Moses were accomplished, they brought him to Jerusalem, they being Mary and Joseph, to present him to the Lord. As it is written in the law of the Lord, every male that openeth the womb shall be called holy to the Lord, and to offer a sacrifice according to that which is said in the law of the Lord, a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. So Mary was a sinner in that she offered two two turtle doves or two young pigeons at the temple. One of them was a burnt offering and the other one was a sacrifice for sin. It stands to reason that the offerer was a sinner. Ever since the Lord Jesus Christ laid down his life at the cross, as the sacrificial lamb of God, animal sacrifices were a reminder of sin. They pointed the offerers to Christ. All of that's become redundant. We don't have sacrifices for sin anymore. No more animal sacrifices. However, before Jesus laid down his life for those he came to save, there were sacrifices for sin. Even when Jesus was in the world, there were sacrifices. And there were no exemptions, not even for Mary, who knew God as as her saviour from sin. And there we see in chapter 2, Mary making a sacrifice, a sin offering. Last of all for today, Mary, whose joy was in the Lord, her saviour, rejoiced because he regarded the lowest state of her, his handmaiden. We'll look at verse 48. For he have regarded the lowest state of his handmaiden, for behold, from henceforth, all generations shall call me blessed. One might expect a king who shall reign forever, and of his kingdom there shall be no end, to be, to be brought forth, Uh, to be born from a a, a very important person such as a queen. But that was far from the case with King Jesus. Mary was certainly no queen, was she? Mary was just a lowly handmaid betrothed to a carpenter. And they were poor by virtue of the fact that they offered two pigeons or two turtle doves in the temple. That was an offering for poor people If they weren't poor, they would have offered um, a lamb and a pigeon, or a lamb and a turtle dove. But offering two two turtle doves or two pigeons, that was a concession made for poor people. So Jesus, the King of Kings, the King of Glory, he came into the world, conceived and brought forth by a poor handmaid who was espoused to what? A carpenter. But 
But as for the Son of God himself, not only were Mary and Joseph poor in this world, but we read of Jesus, who is now seated on the right hand of the throne of God, having become obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. We read the following uh, in the prophecy of Isaiah. He shall grow up before him as a tender plant and as a root out of a dry ground. He have no form nor comeliness and when we shall see him there is no beauty that we should desire him. He is despised and rejected of men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief and we hid as it were our faces from him. He was despised and we esteemed him not. That was the case back when Jesus was in the world. The Jews, they received him not. And I would say that's exactly the case now, not just with the Jews, but people as a whole in this world. The only ones that receive Jesus, the only ones who believe on his name, are people who by the grace of God have been drawn to Jesus with loving kindness it's all by the grace of God. Also, just like Mary and Joseph, the Lord Jesus Christ had no earthly riches despite him being the Son of God and the creator and the upholder of all things. Even so, to those who have found favour with God and who are trusting in Jesus for the forgiveness of their sins, whether they be princes or paupers, whether they be celebrities or nobodies, they are people who have treasures in heaven, people who are a royal priesthood. People, as I say, storing up treasures in heaven. And what is the greatest treasure that you have, dear Christian, in heaven? Surely the greatest treasure of all must be Jesus himself. The one who is altogether lovely. Your great God and Saviour, Jesus Christ. Amen.